Okay, well, welcome everyone to today's meeting of the London Aesthetics Forum. As I always, we're very grateful to the British Society of Aesthetics for their continued support and sponsorship of the forum. And we're delighted to have with us here today Professor Casey O'Callaghan from Rice University in the States. Uh, Professor O'Callaghan is at the forefront of a flurry of recent research into the nature of auditory perception, uh, and he's published his book, uh, Sounds, a Philosophical Theory, with Oxford University Press in 2009, and also a co-edited collection on sounds and perception, also with Oxford University Press in 2009, and he's here to talk to us today about cross-modality in the arts. All right. Thanks very much for having me. It's great to be here. Um, and thanks especially to those of you who've come to listen two days in a row. <laughs> um, probably should get some special award. Um, so, so this is relatively new material. In fact, this is the first time I've presented it. So, um, so forgive the rough bits and uh, feel free to let loose uh, afterward. Okay, so, so this is um, my attempt to, to, to make sense of the relationship between two things that I care quite a bit about, and that's um, multimodality and perception and some issues to do with aesthetic properties. Okay, so um, the beginning question really is the, the, the idea that there's a broad class of art forms that engage the, the senses in various kinds of ways. Um, the visual arts engage um, visual perception, music engages hearing, and things like maybe perfume engage smell. Um, but some of the art forms engage multiple modalities by, by design. Um, okay? And maybe all of the artworks engage multiple modalities um, in more surreptitious ways and even when not by design. Um, so today what I want to try to do is put together some of my recent work on cross-modal and multimodal perception and bring it to bear uh, on some of these questions. Okay, so some, I'm going to start off with some terminological preliminaries. Um, so <clears throat> I want to suppose that works of art have aesthetic properties, which are or are among sources of aesthetic value. So examples of aesthetic properties include things like beauty, originality, um, form, contentfulness, those sorts of things. So now the way I'll understand a feature um, is as either a property, so a quality or an attribute, or an individual, so an object or event will count as a feature. So I mean feature very broadly. So now I'll say that a feature is aesthetically relevant for an artwork or an art form, just in case some aesthetic properties of that artwork or uh, works of that form depend at least in part on that feature. Okay? So I'm going to leave the form of dependence open. Um, and uh, one note that's important is that there can be aesthetically relevant features that aren't themselves aesthetic properties. So, for example, things like color, pitch, shape, rhythm, authorship, um, date of origin are all things that uh, can make a difference to aesthetic properties but might not be aesthetic properties themselves. Okay? So now, the next bit of terminology is that I'll say a feature is sensorily perceptible just in case it can be perceived by means of an externally directed sensory modality or some combination thereof. Important qualification to that. Um, so things like vision, hearing, touch, taste, smell. Okay. Um, now, since the aesthetic properties that we're interested, I take it, um, are uh, features that we're interested in when we're having either actual or potential awareness, I'm just going to stipulate in this context that perception requires perceptual experience or awareness. Okay? okay, so now we can put some of this together and say a feature of an instance of a work of art is 
a sensorily perceptible, aesthetically relevant feature, just in case it's sensorily perceptible and aesthetically relevant. Okay, now one thing to be clear about is that not all aesthetically relevant features are going to be sensorily perceptible. Okay, so things like authorship and content and maybe novelty or being a forgery are all aesthetically relevant, but nonetheless not sens uh, sensorily perceptible. Okay, so the final piece of terminology is that a perceptual experience of an instance of a work of art uh, will matter aesthetically, uh, or sometimes I'll just say matters, just in case it is or involves perceptual awareness as of a sensorily perceptible, aesthetically relevant feature of that work of art. So this is a, a technical use, and I'm not pretending that it lines up with um, other uses in aesthetics. Okay, okay so now, um, so the... I think the, the question that really motivates this paper uh, or the observation is that intuitively at least the art forms can be sorted into two classes, um, at least two classes I should say. Um, I'll only talk about the unimodal and the multimodal arts, but maybe there are also amodal arts um, as well, and I can, we can say something about that later. Um, so the unimodal arts intuitively are arts that engage one sense, or art forms whose aesthetically relevant features are accessible to just one sense modality. So things like painting, or photography, or maybe music, or sound art, or the um, visual arts are unimodal, candidate unimodal art forms. Okay, so it's not entirely clear what's actually meant by unimodal art form, right? And so in on the handout, I've um, um, mentioned two ways to understand this that I think are possible readings of what it is to be a unimodal art form. Um, and so there's a strong and a weak form of the claim. Okay, so let me say that an art form is strongly unimodal, okay, just in case instances of works of that form are such that only experiences that are associated with a single given sensory modality, like vision, for instance, reveal sensorily perceptible aesthetically relevant features of that work. So only perceptual experiences associated with vision, for instance, um, matter aesthetically. Okay, so, um, so there's some one sense modality that's necessary, but which also suffices to, uh, to enjoy all of the perceptual experiences that matter. So the idea here, and I think um, this will help once move forward is that so here's the strong um, with strong unimodality if we have the sensorily perceptible aesthetically relevant properties right so suppose there's you know P Q and R um, we've got experiences associated just with for example vision revealing those those features so for example there's no other modality that's revealing or accessing any of the aesthetically relevant sensorily perceptible features. Okay, so that's ruled out by the strong. Okay, so they're all associated with the given modality. Um, okay, so now on the other hand, we can have a weaker claim, which I've called weak unimodality, which says that a single modality suffices to perceptually experience all of the sensorily perceptible aesthetically relevant features of the work. Okay, so, so the idea here is that... Um, You've got, so here's the weak unimodal claim, right? You might have experiences that are, well, let me do it this way, that are associated with other modalities revealing 
um, these features. So now we're allowing that, for example, Audition provides access to those features, but we're saying that there's one modality which suffices to experience each of those. So you only need one modality in order to get at all of those properties. So in other words, there's none left over that that modality um, fails to get at, which some other modality gets at. So that's ruled out in the case of weak unimodality. Okay, so you've got one modality that suffices. Okay, so um, now <clears throat> the unimodal arts are contrasted intuitively with the multimodal arts, which are intuitively arts of more than one sense. Um, so things like film or opera or maybe dance or architecture are art forms that, by design, engage more than one sense modality. So let's say that an art form is... Um, well, actually, so again, this is going to come in a weak and a strong version. And I'll start off with the weak version of the, um, of the multimodal claim. So we'll say that an art form is weakly multimodal, just in case instances of works of that form are such that perceptual experiences associated with more than one sense modality matter aesthetically. Okay, they, they reveal sensorily perceptible, aesthetically relevant features. So, so now we're saying that there exist at least two modalities with which some perceptual experience that matters aesthetically is associated. Okay, so, um, so now what we've got is that more than one sense modality is required not just to access all of the, 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 the features, but to enjoy all of the aesthetic experiences that matter. Okay, or all of the perceptual experiences that matter aesthetically. Okay, so in the case of weak multimodality, okay, um, so weak multimodality is compatible with weak unimodality. Okay, they can both be true at the same time. But what we've got now is a situation where suppose we have vision, um, and I'll, I'll make it. Compatible. So vision suffices to have access to all of the aesthetically relevant features, sensorily perceptible features, but since audition also reveals some of those features or provides access to them, there are aesthetic experiences that, or sorry, there are perceptual experiences that matter aesthetically that aren't associated with that single modality. Okay, so each, anything, any case where you have a modality providing access to a feature gives you an experience that matters, according to the terminology. Okay, so um, notice that the weak multimodality is incompatible with strong unimodality, right? So those are incompatible with each other because um, strong unimodality rules out that there are such experiences. Okay, and um, so the last... Um, form that I want to talk about is strong multimodality. Okay, so strong multimodality is a is a claim that's incompatible with either of the two forms of unimodality. Okay, so I want this to be uh, incompatible with these. Um, now, of course, it's going to be compatible with weak unimodality. It's going to entail it. Um, so, according to strong uh, multimodality, one sense modality doesn't suffice to perceptually experience all of 
the sensorily perceptible, aesthetically relevant features. Okay, so that is not all of the sensorily perceptible, aesthetically relevant features are accessible by means of awareness that's associated with a single sense modality. So in other words, the, the basic idea here is that there are going to be now these there are going to be features that you can only access if you've got another sense modality. So there might be common sensibles, right? But there's going to be at least two modalities required in order to experience all of these sensorily perceptible aesthetically relevant features. Okay? So that's the idea behind strong. Now this um, strong multimodality entails the weak multimodality, but it's incompatible with each of these. Because now we don't have any single modality that suffices to access all of the properties, so not even the weak um, multimodality is true. Okay, so, uh, and as I said, there's actually, I think, you know, we could probably talk about amodal arts, too, in this kind of intuitive term. So maybe something like literature is going to count as a, um, an amodal art form, but I'm not going to discuss that here. Okay, so now that background is in place. I want to sort of step back a little bit and ask two questions. The first question is, in what ways does perceptually experiencing the aesthetically relevant, sensorily perceptible features of a work of, uh, or an instance of multimodal art depend upon perceptual experiences that are associated with more than one sense modality? Now, in particular, there's a kind of um, more specific version of this question, which is the thing that I'm really interested in, which is the question uh, whether perceptually experiencing the aesthetically relevant, sensorily perceptible features of an instance of a work of multimodal art depends on what we might call cross-modal perceptual experiences. Okay? And these are experiences that can't exhaustively be characterized in terms of distinct experiences that are associated with different sense modalities which in principle could have occurred independently or in absence of each other. Okay, so, so these are, um, so, so what I'm asking is, does appreciating the aesthetic features or the aesthetic properties of multimodal arts depend on having experiences that are something like more than the sum of their modality-specific parts? Okay, and so just as a preview, the answer is yes, um, it does. Uh, um, the second question that I want to ask after exploring the responses to that first question is, are there any unimodal art forms at all? And as a preview, I'm going to say no. Okay? So, or, I mean, I should characterize myself as putting forward an argument to this effect. I'm not sure I'm entirely committed to this, uh, to, the, to the conclusion yet. But, um, okay, so start with question one. So, to what extent and in what ways... Does being in a position to appreciate the aesthetic value of a multimodal artwork depend on multimodal awareness? Okay, so that's the question. And what I want to do is go through six distinct ways in which it might. Okay, so um, this is sort of a catalog, I guess. Mm -hmm. Okay, so the first form 
um, is what I call minimal multimodality. So some perceptual experiences of instances of artworks are multimodal in the pretty minimal sense that they involve perceiving with more than one sense modality. Right? So consider seeing a dance performance, uh, which itself is going to involve you know, seeing some dancing and hearing some music, for example. And so it follows that you know, appreciating the full aesthetic value of that work is going to require having some visual experiences and having some auditory experiences. Okay, so dance is strongly multimodal. Um, you'd have kind of impoverished experience if you didn't, um, you didn't see and hear it. So, um, let me see. Where am I? Yeah, okay, so it would be impoverished if you didn't see both. So now, um, but notice that the, the aesthetically relevant um, audible features of the work include ones that you could have heard even if you hadn't been seeing it, right? You could have heard the music and enjoyed those features even if they hadn't been seeing the thing. And the visible features include ones that you could have seen even if you hadn't been hearing it, right? You could have been blind or, had, uh, or could have been deaf or had your ears covered and you'd still be able to access them. Okay, so suppose, right? So this is the supposition that the auditory and the visual experiences of each of those sorts of things suffice together to reveal the aesthetically relevant, sensorily perceptible features of the work. Right, so the auditory experiences that you could have had alone and the visual experiences you could have had alone um, together exhaust your experience of the sensorily perceptible, aesthetically relevant features of the work. Okay, now, if this were the case, we'd have a multimodal perceptual experience that mattered, right, aesthetically. So if you had the experience of all of those features together, it would be multimodal. But crucially, why it matters can exhaustively be captured by mentioning aesthetically relevant visible features and aesthetically relevant audible features, each of which could have been perceptually experienced in absence of each other. Okay, so whenever this is the case, whenever this claim is true, call the multimodal experience that you're having minimally multimodal. Okay, so it's um, multimodal, but it's multimodal in the minimal sense that involves experiences associated with just more than one sense modality. Okay, so that's the, um, the first form. So now I want to ask, moving on to form two, which I call concurrence. Are there additional aesthetically relevant, sensorily perceptible features beyond those revealed by the auditory experience and the visual experience kind of independently? So for example, you're watching the dance performance, you hear the high note and you see a jump at the same time, right? Um, you're also aware of the concurrence of the high note and the jump, right? So the conjunction itself has aesthetic significance or is aesthetically relevant. So the combination of the high note with the visible jump itself has aesthetic relevance that can't be explained just by mentioning the individual presence of each. Okay, so here's a claim. Such an experience of concurrence is a cross-modal perceptual experience that matters aesthetically and which isn't just uh, the occurrence of a visual experience and the occurrence of an auditory experience. It's not just minimally multimodal. Okay, so that's the claim. Um, here's one objection to that. Aesthetic math is hard. Okay, so 
Um, once you've accounted for the aesthetic relevance of the note and the aesthetic relevance of the jump, and you add them together, why well, think that there's some further aesthetic feature or value that depends upon the co-occurrence of the two? Okay, so that's one objection, I think reasonable objection. Second objection, which is more pressing, I think, is that the conjunction itself isn't a sensorily perceptible, aesthetically relevant feature. Right? Instead, you might say, it's just something you grasp in thought, or you, know, you can appreciate it by um, reflecting on the experience of these lower-level things. Um, and so you might say that that experience doesn't matter aesthetically because it's not, um, it's not a perceptual experience in, in the right way. If that's right, then this case of concurrence will collapse into form one, which was minimal multimodality. Okay, so... Suppose that's the case. Consider another form of multimodal experience. Um, and this is what I call cross-modal recalibrations and illusions, or what I'm calling here. Um, I didn't invent the name. Um, so cross-modal illusions are cases in which stimulation to one sensory system impacts experience that's associated with another sense modality and in a way that leads to an illusion. Okay, so some examples of this stuff. I'm not sure how many. I, this was, I was thinking, we, we can demo some of these later if people want to. But the ventriloquist effect is an example of this. So you have a visual stimulus that leads to an auditory spatial illusion. Uh, another example of this is the McGurk effect, which probably a lot of people have seen, which involves speech and hearing. It sounds as if you're hearing a, a, a da sound, even though the uh, auditory stimulus is a, is a ba. Um, you know, and that's caused by the seeing the visual stimulus as of a ga sound, so, um, or if someone uttering ga. So um, that's, a, that's a kind of interesting case. The rubber hand illusion involves a spatial and, a, and an ownership illusion. And uh, there's a, a few other cases. The sound-induced flash, a, a case which I love because it's a really nice auditory illusion, that, uh, visual illusion that's produced by uh, an auditory stimulus. And, um, and then there's some, some that involve causation, so the most secular motion bounce illusion. Okay, so those are just some examples. We can talk more about those later. Um, now, how do we go about explaining these things? Um, the processes that are responsible for these cross-modal illusions involve kind of a principled form of conflict resolution, at least in some of the cases. Um, so, <laughs> in other <laughs> Uh, uh, so, so, in other words, what happens is when information from different sensory systems uh, conflicts, so you get an incongruent visual and auditory stimulus, um, uh, it's weighted in favor of one or the other modalities, and that, and that conflict is, is resolved in favor often of the modality that's more specific, uh, that's more, um, uh, more accurate for that, or reliable for that feature. So vision tends to win out when it's a spatial conflict. Audition tends to win out when it's a temporal conflict. Um, okay, so now, but notice that the resolution of conflicts itself requires the assumption of a common subject matter. So these subpersonal perceptual systems are treating information from the different sensory systems as stemming from a common source or as concerning a common subject matter. Okay, so these cross-modal illusions demonstrate that perceptual systems track features or 
individuals accessible to multiple sense modalities. Right? So for instance, objects which have certain shapes and make sounds, or spatial and temporal properties. So now here's the, the I guess, the, in some ways crucial claim, but I think uncontroversial. These kinds of features that it tracks include ones that are aesthetically relevant. These um, common sensibles include aesthetically relevant features. So there are aesthetically relevant, sensorily perceptible features that are accessible to more than one sense modality. Right? Um, so for instance, you might both see and hear two objects colliding. Or you might see and hear like the bellowing of a villain uh, in, a, in, a, in the theater. Or see and hear the location of an event. Right? Or see, hear, and feel a rhythm. Okay? Uh, or see and hear some speech, some spoken language. Okay. Now, suppose the fact that a single feature is both visually and auditorily perceived is aesthetically relevant. Okay? Now, this seems plausible to me because... First off, there could be an aesthetic difference between a work with a feature that was visible but not audible and a work in which that feature was both visible and audible. And secondly, there could be an aesthetic difference between a work in which a single feature instance is both visible and audible and a work in which numerically distinct feature instances are visible and audible. So, if that's right then the identity of the visible and the audible feature, or feature instance, itself has aesthetic significance, or is aesthetically relevant. And moreover, that identity is something that's perceptually grasped or represented, as the reasoning about subpersonal um, conflict resolution demonstrates. So, Failing to perceive the identity of the visible and the audible feature would be a failure to fully appreciate a work's aesthetically relevant features. So here's a claim. Such an experience of the identity there is a cross-modal perceptual experience that matters aesthetically and which isn't simply the occurrence of a visual experience and the occurrence of an auditory experience. It's not just minimally multimodal. Okay, so that's the, the claim. Here's a counter-argument. All of this business about conflict resolution and influence across sensory systems dealt with reasoning at the subpersonal level. So we can explain everything I have wanted to explain in terms of a subpersonal perceptual grasp on these common features. None of this means that the identity of that feature has to be experientially apparent. Okay, so, so we, we've only shown that it's maybe possible, but we haven't shown that it actually exists or that these cases occur. So, in other words, all of the reasoning about subpersonal processes might just, just truck in terms of causation and subpersonal representations, none of which is... Uh, apparent at the, at the conscious level for the individual in a perceptual experience. And since we're talking about aesthetically relevant stuff, we 
assumed earlier on that it has to be accessible at the person level. Okay, so that's um, that's big objection, and so such features wouldn't be uh, they wouldn't matter aesthetically in the relevant sense since since they wouldn't be evident to you. So in other words, what would happen? This in effect is a case where the perceptual experience, even if not the subpersonal processes, turns out to be minimally multimodal. Okay, that's the worry here. So then again, this case threatens to collapse into form one which is just the minimal multimodality. So um, the next form that I want to discuss involves uh, what I'll call binding and unity. So I claim that the results of these subpersonal cross-modal recalibrations, which involve a unified grasp on common features, that is, they represent these common features as such, are experientially evident. So consider the difference between the following two perceptual experiences, which those of you who were there yesterday will find familiar. Um, seeing something to be red while feeling something to be rough. And the other case is that of perceiving the very same thing to be both red uh, and to feel rough. Right? So the very same thing that seemed to be red also feels rough. So a perceptual experience of the first type has content of the form that something is F and something's G, or O is F and P is G. And a perceptual experience of the second type has content of the form something's both F and G, or O is F and G. Um, and moreover, if the first one, those type A experiences, aren't also type B experiences, then they can differ in phenomenological character. So in the second kind of experience, but not in the first, you perceptually experience that which has the visible features to be the very same thing as that which has the tactual features. So the type B experience is one in which the, uh, the cross-modal binding of features is experientially apparent. Okay. So... The difference between these kinds of experiences isn't, it's not limited to these weird thought experiments or, you know, like Oliver Sacks type conditions or, um, or, you know, strange Charles Spencian lab setups. Um, there, you know, we have lots of experiences of each kind, uh, both in perceiving non-art and in perceiving art. So think about watching a movie with sound. In general, what happens is you have an experience of type B. Um, that you, you kind of bind the voice and the sound together, right? It seems like the voice is coming from the speaker. But notice, you know, you know when, the, when the timing is off or it's a really poorly dubbed film, um, you get a really different kind of experience, right? You cease to have that binding be apparent, right? So it ceases to seem to you as if you're hearing and seeing the very same thing. It's a really disruptive kind of experience. Okay, so what happens in those cases is that cross-modal identification breaks down. Um, now, of course, movies involve illusory cross-modal binding, since the stimuli, in fact, lack a common source. But watching and listening to performers in a theater, or to music and dance and, and opera performances, or just to listen, you know, listening to me in this context, involves a case, cases of veridical cross-modal feature binding. Okay, so um, let me see. The, I guess. The, the important point about this is that these kinds of experiences are irreducibly multimodal. 
that something is both F and G, or that O is F and G, where the F and the G are features, uh, you know, say proper sensibles associated with different modalities, that just, that can't just be the content of a combination of experiences, each of which is proprietary to a single modality, right? So in other words, the experience can't exhaustively be characterized in terms that are entirely distinctive to individual modalities uh, and which, you know, could have occurred in absence, entirely in absence of each other, okay? Because characterizing it requires mentioning awareness of features that are shared among experiences that are otherwise associated with different modalities. Okay, so um, it follows from this that, for example, sometimes you perceptually experience the feature you hear as being the very same feature you see. Um, so this, it turns out, is a distinctive variety of cross-modal perceptual experience in which the, the, the binding or the unity is experientially evident. Okay, so now what we, what we do is we apply just the same line of argument that I tried to run for form three, but which ran into this obstacle about its being consciously uh, accessible. Okay, so the claim is that there is an aesthetically relevant, sensorily perceptible feature, that is the identity or the unity of the visible and audible feature, that's not perceptible through experiences associated with a single modality. Um, and it's also not accessible through experiences um, associated with different sense modalities, which one in principle could have in absence of each other. Okay, so, um, so then I say the perceptual experience of that feature um, matters, right? It's a cross-modal perceptual experience that matters aesthetically. Um, and it's not just the sum of an auditory experience and a visual experience, each of which could have occurred in absence of each other. So it's more than just minimally multimodal. So this kind of form, this binding in unity case, escapes the objection that I raised above because the identity of the visible and the audible feature is experientially apparent. Right? So the thing which is supposed to have aesthetic significance is, um, is accessible to you in experience. Okay, so the experience is minimally multimodal. Okay, so that's um, the fourth form. The fifth form, I think, is when things actually start to get in pretty interesting. And this is a case of um, novel, multimodally accessible features. So these are cases in which the identity of a visible and an audible feature is experientially... Uh, oh, wait, sorry. Uh, I think I've got this wrong. All right, okay, so the cases above in which the identity of the visible and the audible feature is experientially evident, these are ones in which a cross-modal experience matters aesthetically and in a way that goes beyond what we can explain by the contributions of the individual sense modalities. But somebody might reply to this by saying that um, in those cases, what's going on is that there's a distinctive variety of perceptual content or a distinctive variety of phenomenology, um, but it's not as if you're perceptually experiencing as of some distinctive um, perceptible feature, 
of the, of the work, right? Which might count as an aesthetically relevant, sensorily perceptible feature of the instance of the artwork. It's just something about you. It's not something about it um, that, that differs there. But suppose that there are novel features that are accessible only by way of some perceptual experience that's associated with more than one sense modality. And, um, you know, and so these features are perceptible or perceptually experienceable only thanks to the operation of more than one sense in conjunction. Right? So these novel features are going to be accessible um, not through any perceptual experience associated with a single sensory modality, okay, which, again, in principle could occur in, in isolation from, from the others. Okay, so call these things emergent multimodal features. So these are entirely new varieties of features that are accessible only through cross-modal experiences. So um, one example of this um, might be flavors. Um, so flavor perception requires the operation um, of both taste and orthonasal and retronasal olfaction. Barry can teach us about the details of this um, later on. <clears throat> so you couldn't perceptually experience flavor through the operation of taste alone or through smell alone. Um, now, another example of this kind of thing might be, um, and again, this is something I mentioned yesterday, perceiving a sound to be caused by a visible source. So you hear a sound, you know, you see a source, you hear a sound, you perceptually experience the sound as caused or as generated by the visible source. That's something you can't explain in terms of awareness associated with a single modality. So this um, visual auditory causation, that specific variety might be a novel, um, multimodally accessible or emergent feature. Uh, let's see, there's, well, anyway, okay, so we could try to come up with other examples of these, but given that, flavor and intermodal causation might be examples of features which are sensorially perceptible, aesthetically relevant, inaccessible by experiences associated with any single sense modality, and accessible only through these cross-modal experiences associated with more than one sense modality. Okay, so, um... That's a, a fourth way in which multimodal awareness, uh, and in particular cross-modal experience, matters. So the final thing that I want to talk about are parasitic cross-modal transfer cases. Um, okay, so I, and I know Barry loves the name of this. If anyone has a better name for this, I sort of like the, the repellent sound of the... the the, the term, but others may not. Um, so these are cases, parasitic cross-modal transfer, are cases in which some features perceptible through experiences associated with one sense modality, call those the parasitic experiences, but only thanks to or in a way that uh, depends upon experiences associated with a different sensory modality, call those the host experiences. So here's some examples. Um, I'm sure most of you are familiar with, you know, Barclay claimed that you could see spatial features, but you could only see spatial features thanks to 
um, tactile awareness. Um, another example uh, is Strawson. Strawson claimed that you could hear spatial features. You could auditorily experience spatial features, but you could do so only thanks to the presence of visual or tactual awareness. Um, so if you read that closely, he says, he's prepared to say, you can hear spatial features on the full strength, you know, on the strength of hearing alone, but only in cases when you also have visual awareness, right? And so then he goes on to talk, he's talking about in the background purely auditory experiences, which he says would be non-spatial. So you can only, you can experience space auditorily, but only thanks to vision. Um, right, so that's maybe a case. Now, if spatial features, auditorily experienced spatial features are aesthetically relevant, which surely they must be, then we've got auditory perceptual experiences as of spatial features which matter aesthetically, right? But those experiences, of course, depend on either prior or maybe another form is simultaneous perceptual experiences associated with a different modality. In that respect, they're cross-modally parasitic perceptual experiences. Um, another example is might just be seeing a sculpture or even a painting as having tactual features, right? So you might see something as being solid, where that has an, an important tactual component to it, um, or as being rough, which would have a, a kind of tactual component as well. So that's a second form. Another form might be um, hearing effects, um, hearing sounds as effects, call it audible effects. So we talked about the cross-modal case where there's a novel feature, but maybe after having that go on, you can hear a sound as having been caused by a visible source. And if that's right, then we might have a, a kind of parasitic transfer that depends upon um, an emergent multimodal feature. So maybe this case combines those two. Um, okay, so that's, a, that's another example. So if in general you consider a case of perceptually experiencing some aesthetically relevant feature of an instance of a work of art, and you suppose that that's a kind of parasitic experience that wouldn't have been possible without parasitic cross-modal transfer from another sense modality like vision, then um, maybe we've got another example of a case where there's a dependency on multimodal awareness um, and where that cross-modal parasitic experience matters aesthetically. So maybe that's yet another form of um, kind of novel, aesthetically um, significant experiences that couldn't have occurred with just individual modalities operating in isolation. Okay, so um, deep breath now, I guess. So that's the, um, the various kinds of ways in which we might have multimodal awareness contributing to the aesthetic appreciation of a particular instance of a work of art. So now the question is, are there any unimodal art forms? And I'll start off with a strong claim and argue that there aren't any strongly unimodal art forms. And I'll move on to the weak claim and I'll argue that there aren't any weakly unimodal art forms. Okay, so start with strong unimodality. So now from, from the definition of strong 
a strongly unimodal art form. It turns out that only perceptual experiences associated with a single sense modality matter aesthetically. So there aren't any aesthetically relevant features that are sensorily perceptible thanks to any other modality from the one that's in question, say, say vision. Um, <clears throat> now, an art form will satisfy strong unimodality only if the aesthetically relevant features of its instances include only proper sensibles of a single sense modality. Right? So an art form won't be strongly unimodal if there are common sensibles among the aesthetically relevant, sensorily perceptible features of its instances, since common sensibles are, by definition, accessible through experiences associated with other sense modalities, and which experiences thus matter aesthetically in the special sense I'm using. Um, but now, generally, perceptual experiences associated with a given sense modality um, include not just awareness as of proper sensibles of that modality, but also as of common sensibles. And this is so for perceptual experiences of works of the candidate unimodal art forms that I mentioned earlier. Um, so visual arts, music, sound art. So, for example, you see the color of a painting and you also see its shape and its size and its texture. You hear the pitch and the sound of the music, but you also hear where it comes from, how long it lasts, its tempo, and maybe other features like, you know, whether a large or small instrument um, made it and, you know, whether the source is a collision or, you know, a sustained vibration. Now, plausibly, for any art form, Common sensibles, in addition to proper sensibles, are aesthetically relevant. They can make an aesthetic difference. But a common sensible, of course, is accessible through experiences associated with more than one sense modality. Um, so, for any art form, perceptual experiences associated with more than one sense modality can matter aesthetically. Um, now, so, so that's, that's the argument. Um, we can also kind of get at it in a different direction by um, supposing that's not the case, right? So if you suppose that's not the case, then there's going to be experiences associated with exactly one sense modality that matter, um, that are going to matter aesthetically, right? So um, if you have experiences associated with two sense modalities that are as of a particular, uh, you know, a common sensible, then you can have at most one of those experiences mattering aesthetically. Um, um, now, so consider the following two possibilities. Those experiences, as of that common sensible, are phenomenologically alike. If so, then you're going to have two experiences that are phenomenologically alike, which differ aesthetically. And I claim that that's, uh, you know, and all else equal. And I claim that that's implausible. But suppose they differ. Then what we've got is a difference in phenomenal character between aesthetic, uh, perceptual experiences as of a given common sensible sufficing to make a difference to whether the perceptual experience can matter or not. Okay, so, for example, the phenomenological difference between seeing and feeling the textured surface suffices to make it the case 
that seeing the textured surface matters aesthetically, but feeling the textured surface does not and could not matter aesthetically, okay? Uh, or that it's relevant when seen, but not relevant when heard. Uh, but I claim all else equal, a mere phenomenological difference between perceptual experiences as of a single sensorily perceptible feature cannot suffice to make it the case that one perceptual experience matters aesthetically and the other cannot, or to whether the, sense of, uh, the perceptible feature is aesthetically relevant or not. So if surface texture is aesthetically relevant when visually experienced, then it's aesthetically relevant or can be aesthetically relevant when tactually experienced. Right? So if seeing surface texture matters aesthetically, then feeling it can matter aesthetically. Okay, so no art form is strongly unimodal. Okay, so um, on to weak unimodality. So weak unimodality, remember, holds that there's exactly one sense modality that suffices to experience all of the sensorily perceptible aesthetically relevant features of the work. So here's the claim. Um, there aren't any. Uh, let me see if I want to... Um, oh, I guess it's worth noting that, you know, oh, the weak unimodality allows for common sensibles among the aesthetically relevant, sensorily perceptible features there um, in a way that the other doesn't. Um, so let me actually... So here's, here's how the argument goes, and, and it's going to go by way of showing that, well, it's, it, it turns on the fact that the weak unimodality is incompatible with strong multimodality. And then I'm going to try to establish that every art form is strongly multimodal. So I'll try to show that this is the case, and then we just get that nothing is weakly unimodal. Okay, so here's how, here's how that goes. So if instances of an art form either... Um, and, in the first place, uh, have among their aesthetically relevant, sensorily perceptible features proper sensibles that are associated with different modalities like this would be, then it's strongly unimodal. I'm just going to assume that we're not in that, in that situation or that that's not just the case right now because that would, just, that would be a pretty trivial um, version of it. But there's another thing that would establish strong, unimodal, uh, strong multimodality. And that's um, if they have, if the work has among its aesthetically relevant, sensorily perceptible features, those that can't be perceptually experienced, thanks to the operation of any single sense modality in isolation from the others, and which require perceptual experiences associated with more than one sense modality, um, that is, to perceptually experience them requires cross-modal experiences, which aren't just minimally multimodal, then strong multimodality is true of it. Okay, so in other words, if it's not just um, minimally multimodal, then strong multimodality will be true of um, the, the, the related form. Okay, so, and here's how the argument goes. So take an instance of any candidate weakly unimodal art form. So a musical performance, 
an instance of sound art, a painting, a photograph, a print, some food, some perfume, whatever. Um, now, for normal subjects, it's possible to perceive A, that thing, through experiences that are associated with more than one sense modality. You can see and hear the performance. You can see and touch the painting or the print. You can see and taste the food. Whenever you can enjoy awareness as of that instance of the candidate work of uh, weekly unimodal art, through perceptual experiences that are associated with more than one sense, like sight and hearing, then it is possible for you to have cross-modal experiences as of that instance that are not just minimally multimodal. So the relevant um, forms of cross-modal experience are four, five, and six. So you can have um, experiences that involve this cross-modal feature binding that we talked about earlier, or integration and, and unity, cases where that's experientially um, apparent to you. So you can taste and feel the food in your mouth, or you can see and feel the print um, or the, the, the spatial features of it. You can see and hear the source of the sound or its location and its duration, for example. Um, and the other, you know, you can possibly have cross-modal perceptual awareness as of these emergent multimodal features like flavor or visual audio causation. Or you might have perceptual experience that's associated with a given sense modality that requires parasitic cross-modal transfer, like seeing solidity or texture of a painting or print, or hearing size or voluminousness. Okay, so these all these these um, these forms of cross-modal perceptual experience describe perceptual experiences that aren't just minimally multimodal, and they're as of these instances of works of art. And so there are features of that instance that are aesthetically relevant sensorily perceptible features that cannot be accessed through perceptual experiences associated with any single sense modality operating on its own in isolation from the others. So no single sense modality suffices to access all of the potentially aesthetically relevant sensorily perceptible features of that work. So that work is strongly multimodal and so it's not even weakly unimodal. So that's the argument. Um, just a couple, couple remarks before, um, before stopping. Uh, so remember, there are kind of two questions. In response to question one, the real aim of this paper is to show that there's a variety of really richly multimodal perceptual phenomena that are, that are relevant to assessing the aesthetic properties of art. And so perceptually experiencing these aesthetically relevant, sensorily perceptible features of an instance of a work of art depends on forms of cross-modal perceptual experience that can't be exhaustively characterized in terms of experiences that are associated with different distinct modalities which in principle could have occurred independently of each other. Uh, and then in response to question two, by arguing against even the weekly unimodal 
the possibility of even weekly unimodal art forms. What I've done is present the outline of a case for skepticism about whether there's um, a distinction in kind between the unimodal and the multimodal arts. Um, so thanks.